Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Brian Weezer right now with Pivotal Research. Pim, uh, Pim. Pim, John, Rich, I'm going to do this. Tom, Every Tom, time Tom, I call John beat. Pim, I got to give Anthony from New Jersey a $5 bill. What's that about? I mean, you know, who made that rule up? Pim, um, let, let me ask you, do you want to start with Facebook, Google, Pim, or do you want to go over to Fox Disney? Are, are, we, actually, are we actually waiting for Pim to, to join us? Or, no, or do you want no. me to answer? No, for soon it's going to be Pim and John. I think Brian, the, the number one question for Brian is of all the companies that he covers at the moment, what's the effective tax rate that they pay? 20%. Already at 20%. What's the line? Nobody pays that? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I looked at this uh, I don't know, recently. And over the last five years of the 16 companies I cover, the median tax rate over those five years for all of my companies was 20% per company. So if they maintain the alternative minimum tax, as is in the Senate plan at 20%, nobody's getting a tax cut out of all the companies that you cover? I'm not that saying cover. that, but it's just to say that nobody pays 35%. See, Tom, this is fascinating. We're all talking about tax cuts and what this means for markets. Brian Weezer's sitting there plugging it through his spreadsheets, and yeah. he doesn't see a tax cut. Well, but the companies that are the highest valued in your world, like Amazon, Netflix, and the others, don't even work by normal financial. But, but CBS only pays, I don't know, 18% on average? CBS. CBS, CBS the broadcaster. The TV, the broadcaster. Yeah. Okay, but w within that is the view to 2018. Does the digital world and the FANG world, does it finally come back? We had Scott Galloway with us yesterday. Thanks, Professor Galloway, for listening. Uh, my book of the year, The Four. Did the digital people finally get their Brian Weezer comeuppance and come back to, to being mere mortals? No, I'm not saying that. Um, but it is to say that like, if Europe, Europe is not going to allow uh, those companies to continue to pay effectively no tax. Um, or Australia or other countries around the world where they aren't paying taxes. Um, I think that it, that's the biggest regulatory risk that they face, the most tangible one. So, Brian, I called it a vicious rotation. Maybe that's a bit of hyperbole, but let's sort of step back and see what we saw yesterday, which was a rotation away from the low-tax paying stocks to the high-tax paying stocks. Does that make sense for you? Does that rotation beneath the S&P 500 add up? Well, I mean, it's understandable. Um, I think the bigger issue is that you have a lot of uh, investors who made a lot of money on Facebook, and uh, in particular uh, among companies I cover. And uh, arguably, they've been they're seeing the discoveries and the CBSs of the world as uh, maybe too cheap. And maybe there is uh, some tax uh, upside that they think will happen. And on right. top of that, you have M and A considerations with back to Fox and Disney and what that means. Well, let's go to Fox and Disney. What is it about the regime, the current regime, that's pushing these two companies to? make a deal i don't by political regime i, d I don't really see that as being a, a factor i do see it as more idiosyncratic it's that disney needs to find growth engines they see over the top solutions whether it's hulu or whether it's what sky is doing outside of the uk in particular yeah. um and the economies of scale that can come with uh adding some of the fox assets under consideration it's, it's very individual and by the way they might also get a ceo out of it if well, James Murdoch goes with the well, trade. Here's, here's something that I'm thinking about, and we'll get to James Murdoch right now. Who's driving this? Is it Murdoch at the top, or is it one of the sons below? You know, I wish I knew. I, I, someone 
came up with a good idea and got it in front of the Murdochs and they listened, is my guess. And I don't know if it was a banker, if it was Disney or something else. Because if five years ago, if we were talking about consolidation in this space, I'd be thinking about one thing. 21st Century Fox was going to get bigger, not smaller. One month ago, I would have said that. So so what's changed? Have you got a handle on what's changed no. at all? No, we don't know why. And that's where like the mystery that we have to unwrap here is I don't think that James Murdoch in particular has changed his views about how the world should evolve. In other words, the bigger is better idea. And that's why the only logical solution I could come up with is, did they pitch that James would take over Disney too? Like, otherwise it's still mystifying. Well, hold on. You actually think that's a possibility that James could take over Disney? I think it might be a consideration. By who? I can't, come on. Burbank is going to let James Murdoch... Run Disney. I'm trying to figure out the mystery here. Why would News Corp? Why would the Murdoch family otherwise be considering this? I'm asking. You're I don't know pro. either. It's the best answer I've come Rich up with. Rich Truman, do you know why they want Disney? <laughs> Anybody else? No one in the control room knows, Tom. I, I, it's I a mean, mystery. I mean, You're- okay, look, from an integration standpoint, Bob Iger steps down 2019. At least that's the guidance he's given us. Yes. Does it make sense that someone from the other side of the trade helps this one bed in? Can you point to anyone else who could take over? I don't know. I, I would assume there's somebody in Disney. But the key point here, and, and, and John, help us here with your London expertise. Good morning, Radio London. This discussion of Fox and Disney doesn't include Sean Hannity, right? Correct. Does it include Sky in Europe? We don't know. We, we don't know. No. John, would you explain to our American audience this morning this uproar over Sky in the United Kingdom? It is foreign to we Americans. It, it is the jewel, and it really is the jewel in the Murdoch's crown. They want it. They want it big time, and they've been after it for a while. They want the remaining share of Sky in the United Kingdom. The regulators in the UK have been bracing themselves. They're a little bit nervous about having too much Murdoch influence in UK media. Oh, oh my, come on, my, come on. They're, they're, they won't let them take Sky... Because they don't like Fox News Channel that is in America. That is precisely is that right. And Disney that and James Murdoch right. sanitizes it. And they, that's the thing. Okay. They do not want Sky to become Fox News. Yeah. So, but, Brian, so, Brian, how does this help? How does this help get them, make them get the Sky deal of it all? Because they'll get the equity uh, investment, if you will, because they would get a large chunk of Disney. It's as simple as that. I don't know. I mean, we're speculating here because we don't know what okay. they're thinking. I want to speculate two minutes on Facebook, Google. It is a 100% one-way bet that they will continue their ascendancy into next year. Do you buy it? Or where's the distinction that you see that may get us away from Google, Facebook certitude? Well, I think the top line, yes, it is certain. However, it's the bottom line. It's margin The profitability of Facebook. Yeah. And so does investing in things like making sure that there's not right. a lot of suicides or making sure that there's a little bit less okay. uh, foreign invest- involvement in elections we, in different countries, does that curtail their profitability? Just because of time, do you see any evidence that we watch videos on the internet? Who watches videos? Cats. Cats. <laughs> No, I'm serious. Who watches no, videos? No, I mean, people watch Excuse videos. me. John Tucker's Biscuit. Biscuit loves the Biscuit cat Biscuit was serious? Cat and then cats. cats are watching cat videos, and then it gets... And anyway, no, I mean, people watch video uh, on their handheld devices, on their tablets, on their computers. Most video consumption occurs okay. on a TV set, though. 20 seconds. Is the NFL dead? No, but it's declining. It's declining, but can it still make a bazillion, gazillion dollars a year? Yes, because there will be increasing competition for the rights and Facebook. Do you and think Amazon, Amazon will get in there? Is that Bezos yeah. is quiet? Yes. You, you would think whether it's Amazon specifically <clears throat> or Amazon and Google and Facebook as bidders? Yes. 
Brian Weezer, thank you so much. We just Pimple grilled Reezer. the hell just out of Brian Weezer, didn't we? We do. We do. This is different, John. This is <laughs> you're in a hardball, okay? Right now with us, Christopher Verone. He works with Jason Trenard over at Strategus, and he is wicked awesome good at trends. The trend is your friend. Thank you, Marty Zweig, uh, for that phrase. Chris Verone, the trend this year is 12 months trailing up 20% for the SPX. Yeah. By definition, we revert to the mean. Do we, do we revert to the mean or by definition, do we overshoot into some ugliness? I think we overshoot. It's hard to imagine that the third greatest bull market ever would end without a blow-off. We saw a blow-off in 99. We saw a blow-off in 66. Uh, I would be very surprised if this one did not end with similar type of price action, with the type of euphoria okay. that has often characterized the tops. What John and I have seen in all the bars we go into, and that means more pharaoh than me, but it, when you Speaking go to any blown off. It, it, when you when you go into any bar in this city, the topic in, in any Wall Street bar is how much is a correction, how much is a bear market. Yeah. If a correction is ten percent, what's the new correction level? Well, I think what's interesting about 2017, the biggest drawdown has been about 3%. It's been the most benign year since 1995. So is it out of place to say next year will be more difficult than 2017 was? Probably not. But I don't want to confuse a 3 4 5% consolidation with the change in the broader trend. We still think the broader trend remains intact here. This has been a liquidity-driven market. So I think we need to watch measures of liquidity for a sense on how healthy the trend is. Stuff like the spread between the two yield and the Fed funds rate, stuff like high yield spreads are still largely supportive uh, of the trend in stocks right now. Chris, what does a melt-up actually look like? How do I know when I see one? You'll know. <laughs> uh, I think it'll be fun. Um, when we look back at, uh, call it late 98 uh, into 99, uh, the persistency and the speed with which uh, the market went up uh, was recognizable. I'm not sure we're there quite yet. Yeah. What's interesting here, we can make a case that maybe the underlying pieces of this bull market, though, are starting to change. We're obviously seeing technology take a bit of a break here while financials reaccelerate. Consumer gets better. Energy gets better. So the small caps take over? Yeah, you know, they've tried to sell small caps twice in the last three months. They failed both times. They tried in September. They couldn't keep them down. They tried in November. They couldn't keep them down. I think there's a reasonable case to be made that small caps are in a position to reassume some leadership here. I want to touch on some of the commodity complex, yeah. some of the moving parts there. Is it time to cover your energy shorts? I think it is. Um, what's interesting about the energy sector, for the last two or three years, if you put 10 charts in front of me, you couldn't really tell the difference between Chevron or Exxon or Exxon or EOG. They're all starting to look different now. So it tells me investors are actually starting to, to discriminate among stocks. In what way, Chris? Just be more specific on how oh, they look Some are going up, some are going down. Oh, right. It's as not, simple as that. <laughs> exactly. It is not this highly correlated trade anymore. Investors are making rational decisions about what stocks should go up and what stocks should go down. That's an incremental improvement for the sector compared to 12 months ago or two years ago or three years ago. Is it classic late cycle behavior to start covering energy shorts and get long? 
To be honest, I'm a little bit skeptical of any analysis right now that tries to zone in or focus too much on where we are in this business cycle because it has not been a traditional yeah. business cycle. It's been a liquidity cycle, not a business the cycle. The thrust of your research note, and folks, again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. We're not going to send you out. Chris, you wouldn't believe how many people email me. Can you just send us his deck? <laughs> no, we don't. It's their livelihood. It's how they pay for Thank the you. child to come. Uh, Mr. Verone, when, when you look at the heart of your research note, it's about my waistline and expanding market. Yeah. I know what expanding is, John. Expanding my waistline. Yeah. I'm doing a good job, right, John? That's that's what we're so doing in the so bars. Good. <clears throat> Very good. good what is an expanding market? I don't know that term. I think what's been frustrating for a lot of the bears is right when one group starts to falter, another group or another two groups steps in and fills the void. And that's what we've seen over the last several weeks. Just as tech begins to stumble, financials reaccelerate, small caps reaccelerate, consumer reaccelerates. That, I think, is a definition of an expanding market where participation is getting right. broader, not narrower. Okay, Chris Frone, thank you so much for the briefing today. Love it. With Strategus at Research with a, a really optimistic tone within the great bull market that we're in. John Farrow and Tom Keen joining us on Megan Green uh, with work out of Oxford in a school that wears orange in New Jersey uh, as well. I want to get back to basics, which is for our listeners, where's the wage growth at every level? Everything now is about tax cuts and brackets and how much I'm going to take home. But the solution is wage growth. John, am I right? It ain't there. It's not there at a time is, when you'd think it would be there with unemployment right? as low as it is, Megan. Yeah, so I think the relationship between unemployment and inflation just isn't the same as it used to be. It's definitely there. So at a certain level of unemployment, you might see wages start to kick in. But I think much bigger global drivers are causing this lack of wage growth. So things like all of a sudden, you know, what we consume are services and services producing sectors are really low wage sectors. So we're adding most of our new jobs in low wage sectors. So do you buy the zero edge angle that all we're doing is employing bartenders and waitresses? No, a piece of it certainly is the gig economy, though. So that's not being captured very well in the wage data, um, maybe through U6 data, so underemployed people, and that's been stubbornly high. Um, but also you have to stick the U.S. within the bigger globalized world and recognize that companies don't have to hire within the U.S.'s boundaries anymore. And so if you have a massive glut of cheap labor globally, that also keeps up for pressure off of in, uh, inflation and, and wages. And so we're not seeing much wage growth because of that. And that trend's not going anywhere. So it started with the industrialization and urbanization of China. Now we have India. Next, it's the Middle East, then Sub-Saharan Africa. So this has ages to run. Could we see U.S. unemployment test the low threes from 4.1, where it's at right now? Yeah, I think we could. And when I think when it gets to the low threes, we might start to see some more wage inflation creep in. Um, but a lot will happen. Uh, a lot will depend on what happens with the economy. So if you believe that this tax bill, for example, is going to boost growth, then you think we'll get there sooner than later. Yeah. Um, I don't think it will fundamentally shift our potential GDP much at all. So I'm, I'm more skeptical. Well, Megan, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about that in a moment. But for unemployment, can we take a step back and, and realize how wrong the Federal Reserve has got this over the last couple of years? A while ago, we had forward guidance from the Fed and they told us six and a half percent once unemployment goes through six and a half we'll think about raising interest rates because they thought that could be the bite point yeah. for wage growth and inflation and here we are down at 4.1 percent is that a moving target now 
Look, it was always an, more of an art than a science. Measuring Nehru or the full level of em- yeah. employment, and the Feds have to re- had to revise their forecasts for this a number of times. Um, but it's 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 not a perfect. Um, measure and so it is a bit of a moving target and the fed's not the only one who's gotten this wrong by the way it's it's this phenomenon is across the developed world um but including in the u.s and i just don't see this phenomenon shifting much anywhere in the developed world so let's talk about why you don't think the tax plan changes this why not So I think in terms of growth, I mean, there are two ways to fundamentally boost our productivity growth in the U.S. or elsewhere. One is to boost productivity. So this tax bill could do that if it encouraged a whole bunch of investment and capital expenditure. There's very little that I see in the tax bill that would do that. The expensing piece actually sunsets after um, about five years it looks like, based on what we have so far. Um, and that won't change companies' capital deployment strategies. Um, so I don't see we'll get a huge boost to to productivity growth. The second way is to fundamentally increase your labor supply. And and it's called the Tax and Jobs Act. But there's yeah. very little that suggests that we'll actually get a boost in employment. One thing we would need to see, I think, is um, an earned income tax credit. Well, and this they- is really important. John's a really good question. This is really important. John said, and it's unimaginable, John, for anybody of my ilk to go under 4% unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. It's like Gary Schilling and deflation, good and bad deflation. Is a 3.6% unemployment rate a good or bad unemployment rate? So I don't think you can make that um, judgment. I think you need to look at what kinds of jobs we're creating. And and the reality is... What kind are we creating? Well, more than half the jobs we're creating for the past two years have been in low-wage, low-hour sectors. So we're mainly creating services-producing jobs, not goods-producing jobs. And that's partly because our consumption patterns have shifted. But I don't see that going anywhere anytime soon. So, Megan, something I'm trying to figure out as we go forward, are these cyclical issues in the labor market or structural issues? Because if we're waiting for for unemployment to plunge into the low threes to get wage growth, it kind of tells me that actually there's a lot of um, there's a lot of spare capacity out there. There's a lot of room to go in the labor market that maybe some of this is still cyclical. Um, so I think it is more structural, actually. I think it's underpinned by these big global drivers that are going to be the case for the next five to <clears> ten <throat> years. So I think it's much less cyclical. Right. I, dare I say it, this time I think is a bit different. You followed the United Kingdom with your um, wandering by Oxford a few years ago. Mm-hmm. What what do you see beneath the headline news there with Brexit? I mean, to me, it's total chaos. John and I were mentioning the Telegraph this morning. is like a TV show. I mean, John, am I right? It, it was like almost like a, you know, a movie, a theater. It's a thing. slow train crash. And now, whether you think the UK comes out the other side yeah. better or worse off, this kind of in between, the way they negotiated yeah. this has just been What's abysmal. And I would say game? Brexiteers and Remainers would both agree yeah. Yeah. that the negotiation right. process has been shocking, Megan. It's true. And, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time talking to the German government. And um, some of them have said to me, look, the UK can't decide what they want. And so at the end of this, we're going to end up handing them a piece of paper and saying, look, this is our offer. You can take it or leave it. And there, there is a risk that that could happen, given how much infighting there is mm-hmm. within the UK government. The fact that the DUP could derail <clears throat> these topics so massively right. you know they have 10 seats but that makes all okay. the difference the thing we learned yesterday is like the previous seat holder mr farrow doesn't know who bucky dent is can you please explain bucky dent to john farrow and our from the yankees in a few years ago yeah so i actually can't but i have to assume this is a red sox yankees reference Am I it right? is Bucky. <laughs> I'm Buck, failing you as a Red you're Sox failing fan. Me. You don't know who Bucky F. Den is either. I don't. What am I? Am I like McKinnon? How old am I? Uh, is I, this I like they don't know? 
He I was mean, the starting shortstop for the New York oh, Yankees. Oh, Pharaoh, reading in. There we in. go. Right. I, I'm reading in a little bit for you. He broke our hearts years ago. Ken Pruitt understood this. The late great Ken Pruitt. I think I've probably this. just blocked it from my memory. You, you did probably. Yeah. I can understand that. Is is as well the buoyancy that this nation needs? Are we going to get it back? The president talks about make America great again. Are, do you see three percent plus real GDP? Um, I don't see sustainable three percent plus GDP. Yeah. I could see a few quarters. Um, we might pull some investment. Um, at Ford in 2018 from 2019, that's probably the best we're going to do. But I don't see potential GDP growth rising that much. How did we get from Brexit to Bucky Dent? How we did, do that. How did you we, do that? It's surveillance. It's that's, we segue like allowed? nothing. Where it's allowed to do that. Okay. I mean, we, it's just can, so I know. I'm just going to make a note there's of it. There's no all. script. And we just go. Okay. And Megan is. Megan once came in with her Red Sox like sneakers on. No, she yeah. didn't. I did. She did you? Yeah. Wow. She never did that for me on TV. <laughs> Marvin, good friend at the Fed. Very quickly here, Marvin, good. What an interesting choice at the Fed. He's an interesting choice. Um, some would argue that he's more hawkish um, than most people in the FOMC. I actually don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's hard to guess whether he's dovish or hawkish. Mm-hmm. Megan, thank you so much. Megan Green with Manulife and the John Hancock Company of Boston and Montreal. We greatly uh, appreciate it today where she is a chief economist and a, a wide-ranging uh, discussion. I want to talk to Jonathan Golub, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Credit Suisse Securities. John, always great to catch up with you. Talk to me about that rotation and what's fueling it and if it's got any longevity as we approach year end. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's a ton of longevity on, on this rotation trade. What, what's interesting is that the market would seem like it didn't do very much, but in reality, the market's been digesting the fact that we're likely to get this taxing for, for probably a week or maybe even longer. But now you have investors looking at who are the big beneficiaries. And I say big as because there are smaller beneficiaries, but it's those companies yeah. that are paying low taxes that you want to be moving away from, and those companies paying high taxes that benefit from this. And there's just this massive revaluing of what every single company right. in the S&P is worth. So every single company is in play right now. John, can I just mention that John Golub has been one of the few who has been consistently stay courageous in this unloved bull market. Yeah. And it's not like one big research paper. It's every 90 days saying, just shut up and be in this market. You know, you know the line about forecasting, bad forecasters forecast often. Jonathan Golub does not forecast often. You've sort of stayed resolute with this bull market, John. And I, I just wonder, as we make that rotation, is it more than just about low tax to high tax? Is there something in there in terms of growth to value as well? Well, it's all about taxes. But however, if you look at the companies that benefit the most in groups like tech, which are growthy, which gets hurt the most, financials are a winner, retails are a winner. And so it it looks like the value guys are generally much bigger winners on this trade. So if you said to me, one year, two year outlook, do I like growth stocks over value? 
absolutely over the next six weeks or three months yeah. i think there's no way that that value can't win because they're such a big beneficiary by this trade i imagine if we took a poll of questions from our listeners right now near the top would be oh, oh, why oh, now john john why now john tucker so does I, john, hold on oh this is important do, do you, you want a poll john tucker does john farrell understand we only have 23 listeners I, no one told we can't me. even get a good statistical I, I thought we well, no, that, was, that was I th- under your leadership. I we now that taking, he's here. I thought we were taking some of my listeners from TV and, <clears throat> and bringing them oh, with Oh, really? Us. Is that the strategy? Yeah, yeah. That oh, was the whole thank point. You. Continue with John Gollum. We're going, we're going worldwide and added an extra 25. Jonathan Gollum. Seriously, though, why now? I mean, the market's meant to be the most efficient discounting machine on the planet. It's looked like we're getting this for weeks. And then all of a sudden, snap, we start pivoting away from the, the low-tax guys to the high-tax guys? Well, th- there's 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 doubt all, all along the uh, the way that this thing is going to... I mean, have, maybe put it differently. The first... The, the focus of the market has been, are we going to get this? Aren't we going to get this? And what's in it? Now, with, with the House plan and the Senate plan for this tax change almost <clears throat> identical, the market is saying, is this thing is yeah. a done deal? Now, we're gonna, now we move on to the second question is exactly... Who's the winner? How much more or less is ExxonMobil okay. worth? How do we revalue that? Every single individual stock. Jonathan Golub with us with the Swiss Bank Credit Suisse. So you can talk about bank stocks in the U.S. a little better than other strategists. We had a previous guest this morning who was all over the big banks as a relative value. He said, forget about curve flattening. Where do you position the big banks in 2018? I'm... I, you have to like the banks. I mean, first, I mean, if you look at the number one thing that banks do is they lend money, and if they get paid back that money, they do well. So, credit performance, loan performance has been terrific. Um, the economy is in good shape. This tax change incrementally makes it better. The banks are higher taxpayers because they're mostly domestic, which means they're a beneficiary on that. Um, interest rates are likely to rise, which helps them out that way. It's it's almost as if everything that the banks want to see is yeah. all happening. Happening uh, right now, and they're still very reasonably valued. Two things, John. Let's deal with the first one. The first one is the supply of credit. They might be willing to lend more. A consumer says in business is, are they looking to borrow more? Because from what I see in the loan growth data right now, is some softness, not some strength. No, you're, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, one of the areas that's been so disappointing, and one of the areas I think on this tax deal that we may miss is you've had really low interest rates for a long time, and yet there's been companies have not borrowed nearly as much as you would have thought they are. What we, what we need is confidence. What I'm hearing from senior investors is that we might see a pickup in business activity and um, mergers and acquisitions because there's yeah. less, cl- there's much more clarity today on what the out, what the environment is than there was a few months ago. If you were going to do a transaction six months ago, you didn't know what the taxes you were going to pay on that transaction. You didn't know what the regulatory environment was that you're operating in. And uh, you know, in the last week, we've gotten more clarity. That's the volume of activity for the banks. Now let's talk about the price. Conceptually, it's really straightforward. Banks borrow short, they lend long, and they really? book the profit in between. And it's as simple as that. So when you look at the curve and you know exactly where I'm going with this, most people would say, look at the treasury curve. It's flat. And for that very reason, the bank profits aren't going to be as big as you expect. What do you say back to them, John? Okay. So, and I think that that's 
partially true, but let's let's look at it this way. If if interest rates go up, if the Fed raises interest rates by 50 basis points, do I think I'm going to get 50 basis points more on my checking account from JP Morgan or Bank of America? The deposit, Probably, deposit beta yeah. has remained really low. Right. So so what you're going to have is is that they're going to be able to lend money at that additional okay. spread, and I'm not going to get yeah. it as a depositor. They're going to benefit on I that trade. I know you can't talk about individual stocks, but you've got to be quite taken by the CVS at Ballet. There's a lot of, you know, good analysis out today on this. I don't know what your research people have said. If you want to talk about it, great. But do you see synergistic, ginormous M&As as part of next year because the revenue line isn't there for companies? You know, I, you know, I, I'm not an M and A. I'm not a, a you know a a, a, a specialist in in, in oh, M and A activity. On, but but I, I, but I think there's I think there's two issues here. First is there is some freeing up of capital that that companies can tap to do transactions. But more importantly, and, and this is what I'm hearing from people who are who are much closer to these transactions, is that there's more clarity today than there was yesterday. Does that is that driving this individual deal? Probably not. What does it do but, to multiple? What's it do to the core twenty one multiple say in the S and P five hundred? It's got to support it, right? Uh, you know, I, I, if you, if you look at the broad, are you talking about Morgan M and A or taxes? M and A. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if if M and A happens when there's more confidence, when there's more clarity, and when those things happen, stock multiples go higher. There's no question about it. Can we just get a final word on you on the alternative minimum tax? A lot of people didn't expect that to be maintained in the Senate bill. It's in there. It's also. 20%. Does that move the dial on this tax story for you? You're talking about on the corporate side or you're talking on about- On the corporate side. Yeah, I mean, there's there are- there are a ton of companies who are paying very, very little. And what this is going to do is it's going to, it's going to take those companies who have been able to avoid taxes and bring them, bring them up to something that's more fair. And it's going to, on the other hand, give relief to other companies. Um, and ultimately, for the whole market in, in total, this is, this is a lowering of tax rate. It makes U.S. companies more competitive. Well, John Gallup, thank you. Thank you so much uh, as well. He is with Credit Suisse looking at the equity markets, and he has been courageous about staying in uh, this bull market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.